to the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the third of our messages uh, dealing with the subject of the Reformation, centering on Christ alone. Sunday morning we dealt with the theme of the fact that in the time of the Reformation, the idea that Christ is Savior had been lost in the church. So the Reformation is a reformation of recovering within the church the glorious truth that Jesus Christ, by his one sacrifice, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the church back there, prior to 1517, had also lost the understanding of Christ as the one who was the high priest. The idea that one could boldly enter into the presence of God, that we have the confidence to do so, because the curtain has been torn. We might enter in to the very presence of God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. The one who gave his blood. And so the Reformation is about that. But it's also about recovering the concept and understanding. The fact that Jesus is Lord. That Christ is Lord. And so we read God's word this evening. And we're going to begin at verse 11. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, or by a single offer. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is particularly verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that uh, the concern that we had over Lana was not as bad as what we thought, and we just pray, Father, that you would bless her, and Father, that you would uh, keep your hand of protection around her. Father, now as we are reminded by your psalmist David that Christ, the good shepherd, will lead his people to green pastures besides quiet waters. Father, we won't know and understand that he is preparing that for us now as we come to the preaching of your word. Father, may we feast on your word, may we drink deeply from the a water of your salvation, Father, that you may nourish us and refresh us. And Father, maybe we be still this evening and know that you are God. All this we pray in his name. Amen. And amen. So what was it like 1515, 1516 prior to the Reformation? Well, let's first of all remind ourselves of what it must have been like as a Christian come to church. You came to a great, large cathedral, cold, dark. 
in which the service was conducted in Latin, a language you didn't even know or understand. The coldness, the bleakness, the darkness was exemplified even more so and highlighted even more so because the one thing that was central within your church was an altar, and above that altar, it was not a cross, but there was a crucifix. There was a dead Christ, a dead Jesus, a stark reminder every time you entered the building. You know, the reformers taught us that we're not to be taught by dumb images, images that cannot speak. But you know, there is a sense in which images do speak, don't they? What would it be telling you over and over and over again in the coldness and the darkness and the bleakness in the fact you couldn't even understand what was happening before your very eyes and the fact that you were held at a great distance from participating in parts of the service and there above it all hung a dead Man, a dead man on a cross. Once you left, life outside of the cathedral was not much better. There was economic hardship throughout Europe. There was little hope of ever economic gain unless perhaps you were of the nobility, of which there were very, very few. So that most of us would have simply had the expectation of it's never going to get any better and I sure hope our next kid makes it past two years of age. Your outlook and expectancy of life is somewhere perhaps between 40 and 50 years old if things go well. You actually probably belong to someone else. You are their You have a feudal lord over you. The outlook is you're going to stay there and your children are going to stay there for the rest of their life too. You're going to be a servant for the rest of your days. You wear itchy clothes. When it gets dark, it gets dark. You work from sunrise to sunset. There is no such thing as recreation. Politically, Europe is falling into pieces. You have no clue where this is going to go or what king or what noble is going to require you to put on heavy chains of armor and go and fight with the sure certainty you're going to die over a battle that you have no clue as to why it's being fought or what they're doing or what is going on. You just know that things are changing and they're changing in terms of politics, way too fast, and you're really uncomfortable with it. Besides that, there is an outside threat that is threatening to invade your entire continent at any moment. It's called the Ottoman Empire. Muslims are threatening the entirety of Europe. You say to yourself, self, 
499 years later, things don't seem like they've changed too much. See, what the reformers understood is they needed to recover from the search of God's word. They needed to recover a teaching that had been hidden, a teaching that had been downplayed, a teaching that had not been exalted, a teaching that had not been lifted up, a teaching that had not been presented, probably because your priest couldn't even read the scriptures, probably because your priest didn't even know the foggiest about what was in the Bible. All he knew was some Latin phrases and how to conduct the Mass. Perhaps not unlike today. We have threats from the outside, from the Islamic State. We have threats inside with a nation that looks like it's lost its head and it's a chicken running around. Economically, the news is we're not any better off, I think it was, than 1997. Going nowhere fast. Debt piling up, wondering what that's going to do. Perhaps we too need to recover something because you hear an awful lot of Christians. You hear an awful lot of Christians who are, oh, this is bad. Oh, I'm so worried. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Quote Max Licato, somebody I don't normally quote. (laughs) I know who's in charge November 9th. I'm okay with the one who's in charge. Because their name isn't Trump or Clinton. Their name is Jesus Christ. That's the one who's in charge. And just as much as in 1517, there needed to be the recovery of that, so there needs to be that recovery today. The recovery of the Lordship of of Jesus Christ. Let's look at three things this evening. First of all, the descriptions of the Lord that are given to us. Secondly, the victory of the Lord. And thirdly, the waiting of the Lord. If you turn in your scriptures to Colossians chapter 1, we have a description there of who Jesus Christ is. The realities of who Christ is. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's for him. See, you've you got to have that description. You've got to understand that description. If you don't understand that description, oh, man, this is bad. No, it isn't. Christ, who is the creator, is the Christ who is in control. God himself. In control. That's the picture. That's the illustration. 
If you as a Christian believe God's word as the reformers were bringing people back and say, hey, do you know what it says in Colossians 1? Look what it says here about who Jesus is. I say to you, do you see what it says in Colossians 1? Do you see those words? Those words are true. And they're true from the pen of Paul at the time he wrote it to the city of Colossus, to the church there, as much as they are to you and I today. He is the image of the invisible God and all nations, all powers, all authority are created by him and for him. They serve him. Nothing threatens the rule and reign of your Lord and Savior. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. Book of Revelation chapter 1. Those of us, Wednesday night, Bible study. Beautiful opportunity to look at this. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. See, before I read it, understand, they didn't have this. Oh, it was there, but they they closed it. They kept it shut. They paid more attention to the edicts of the church. They paid more attention to the stuff that came in their email. They paid more attention to political parties that were sending them stuff in the mail, telling them, oh, it's so bad. If it were there, Fox News would have been decrying how bad it is. The reformers said, read the word. Read the word. What does it tell you? Who Christ is. Revelation 1, 12. Then I looked to see the voice that was speaking to me and turning. I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Jesus Christ is. Maybe we need to stop reading all the literature and junk that crams our emails and spend more time reading the Word. You know what it'll do? It'll make you a whole lot less fearful. Because this is the truth. This tells you who Christ is. Now, let's go back to Hebrews 10, to that 13th verse. Because there in that 13th verse is revealed to us a beautiful truth that we often overlook. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's a quote. It's a quote from Psalm 110. 
It's from the first verse. But if you go back to Psalm 110, and if you just scan the psalm, you don't even have to read it word for word. Just a, a quick scan of Psalm 110 tells you that the psalm is about the control of Jesus Christ, his rule, his reign, his scepter over the nations. See, you got to pay attention. Where did it come from? It came from a psalm in which the psalmist is looking to the glorious day of Christ's rule and reign. He's not looking at it as a dead man on a cross. He's not saying you ought to adorn your church with a crucifix so you're always reminded that he's dead. Now he's the one who rules and reigns. He is the one who has put his enemies underneath his feet. That's our Lord. That's Jesus Christ. That's what the reformers sought to put before the eyes of believers in that day. That's what you and I need to put before our eyes again. Or at least be reminded of its truth. Now let's understand the image. Okay? The passage in Hebrews uses the word footstool. Okay? The passage in of Psalm 110 until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I would imagine most of us, when we read that term, we're thinking of the thing that we put in front of our easy chair, right? Okay? Maybe some nice red velvety thing. Maybe some thing, something made of wood that has all sorts of ornate stuff all the way around it, and then some cushy stuff and red velvet over it. That's not what is meant here. Until I make your enemies into a nice, cushy, red, velvety, beautiful, ornate little footstool. Or others of you are perhaps thinking, oh, I know what that footstool is. I got my easy chair. Oh, I just love to put my feet up on that nice, comfy footstool. Okay? Oh, it cut, gets me right about here and supports. Oh, that's so nice. Okay? Think about that. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Oh, yeah, nice and comfy. That is not the picture, my friend. Until I make your enemies a place where your feet stand upon. Now, to grasp that image, we've got to go back to the book of Joshua, chapter 10. And you've got to remember, okay, see, you, there's all sorts of things working in here. Okay? You got to get rid of the modern notion of a footstool. You got to understand a footstool in biblical terms, in biblical times. You got to and and to understand it, you don't even understand it in Roman and Greek times. You got to go back to David times. You got to go back to Old Testament times because that's where the quote comes from. So if we're going back into the Old Testament times, not only does David show us the kingship of Christ, he's the foreshadowing of Christ, but the one who is also a foreshadowing of Christ is Joshua. They even share the same name. Jesus is simply the New Testament name for the Old Testament name of Joshua. 
Now go back to Joshua chapter 10. Amazing battle takes place there in Joshua chapter 10. They're, they're going throughout the land, taking control okay, of, of the land. And, and God's going before them. And, and God is going before them in great miracles. We, we have the, the destruction of Jericho. At the beginning of chapter 10, there is the sun standing still, and he's raining down hailstones. Okay? And, and we've got these five kings that all banded together thinking we'll be much stronger if we go against Joshua as a united front. We'll band together and we'll take Joshua down. That's when God intervenes. Interesting, if at the death of Christ there is no son, at the victory of Joshua, there is a son that proceeds to stay up for almost the course of another entire 24 hours. An interesting correlation going on. As I said, hailstones come raining down, and Joshua takes off after this great army that assembled against him. Go to verse 16. These five kings fled, hid themselves in the cave, at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set these men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua at the camp of Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any one of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when, those, and when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on the necks. What did they just become, those five kings? footstools. They just became footstools. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord God will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave. Huh, interesting. Large stones against the mouth of a cave, a sepulcher, and they remain there till this day. How interesting is it not that our Lord is put into a cave with a large stone, but it could not contain him. Now, what's the point of reading all that about Joshua? Here's the point. Let me ask you a question. Was the victory won when they put their feet on the necks of those kings? Think. 
Think about the passage. Think about what we read. Was the victory when they put their feet on the necks of the kings? The answer is no. They'd have already won the victory. The battle was already won. The victory was already theirs. They had already subdued the enemy. They had already slaughtered them along the way. This was just the sign of the victory. It was not the victory. What's the significance? Go back to Hebrews. He will put your enemies underneath your feet. They will become your footstool. Oh, so we got to wait for Jesus to, to defeat them. <laughs> no, folks, no. They're already defeated. Christ has already defeated. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Has Christ conquered death? Yes. He's already destroyed the last enemy. There are no enemies to be destroyed. Remember the, the passage we had out of 2 Corinthians a few weeks ago? Okay, The general marching back and, and Paul's quote that Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Is the triumphal procession the victory? The answer is no. That's just the sign of the victory. That's just the picture of the victory. The victory's already been won on the battleground. My friends, the victory was won on the battleground of the cross. Jesus won. It is finished. It's not a cry of humiliation. It's not a cry of loss. It is the cry of victory. Satan was destroyed. Satan's minions are destroyed. The host of evil has been destroyed. Death itself has been conquered. When our Lord and Savior rose from the dead, he has ascended into heaven. And what is he doing? Ruling, reigning. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father in charge. If you go back and sing the songs again that we have sung tonight, you will see that in our hymn theology, our hymn theology teaches we're not waiting for the victory. He already rules. He already has scepters. Do you think, honestly, that Tuesday's election is going to destroy the lordship of Jesus Christ? The Lord broke pride of perhaps one of the fiercest and strongest emperors of the world, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. So that, remember, Infinity, this morning, that passage from Daniel, opens his mouth in a salutation of praise to God. Satan, my friends, is not in control. As I mentioned to the, to the 
high schoolers this morning. You want to know one reason I know that? Because if Satan were in truly in control, he'd never practice martyrdom. Because the growth of the church always occurs when there are martyrs for the church. When people are martyred for the cross, when people are martyred for Jesus Christ, the church always grows. Well, what an ineffective strategy. If I were Satan, I'd cease then doing any martyrdoms. I'll keep the church from growing. I'll stop martyring people. You see, he's not in control. God is going to build his church. And he's even going to use Satan as the means by which his church is built. He's going to build his church and he'll use Hillary Clinton or he'll use Donald Trump. He will build his church. And it's not a question of, oh, there's going to be a battle he might lose. He's already won. He's already won. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. So what's going on? You say, well, why, why, why does it seem to me then that that's not the way life is? Look at verse 13. It's because we misunderstand this word, waiting. See that right at the beginning of 13? Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made the footstool. Waiting. Some of you know this. It might make more sense to some of you if I use this illustration. On Wednesday night, a pretty historic event took place. It might have been early Thursday morning. I can't remember now. Pretty historic event took place, right? The Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Let me ask you a question. Five minutes later, were the Cubs the world champs? Yep. An hour later, were the Cubs the world champs? Yep. Six hours later, were the Cubs world champs? Yep, 12 hours later, yep, 24 hours later, yep. But guess what? The parade wasn't until Friday afternoon. But you see, the parade isn't the victory. The victory was already won on Wednesday. My friends, we're just waiting for the parade. That's all we're doing. We're waiting for the parade. The victory's been won. He's defeated his enemies. He is in control. Absolute, complete control. He is sovereign over all. That's why he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. We're just waiting for the parade. See, what do you mean we're waiting for the parade? We're waiting for that trumpet call. We're waiting for Christ to descend. We're waiting for the dead in Christ to rise. We're waiting for those of us who are alive at that time to be caught up into that glorious, triumphal procession. See, the church of 1517 needed to recover 
the glorious truth that Scripture gives to us. That Jesus is Lord. My friends, He was Lord in 1517. He is Lord today. He'll be Lord Tuesday. He'll be Lord Wednesday. He will be Lord forever and ever and ever. We're just waiting for the parade. We already know he's the victor. Because the battle is already done. He has won. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. That truth, that truth, that men like Luther and Calvin, Huss and Zwingli recovered during that time of the Reformation is that which we need today. We need to recover the truth of who Jesus is. He is not only Savior, He's not only the great high priest, but that Jesus is Lord. His name, we willingly wait. God's people say, Amen.